Good morning, y'all. How's everybody today? Doing good? Amen. We're blessed, aren't we? We're blessed. Well, as Kurt said, we're going to circle back a little bit, talk about uh, David being a man after God's heart. But really, I also think that we can find a connection in here uh, about what Kurt shared last week about next steps and moving on and advancing into the things that God has called for us uh, to do and to be. And so, David is probably the most written about character in the Bible outside of Jesus. Obviously, there's a lot about him in the Old Testament, First and Second Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. I mean, he's in all of that. Um, and so he's obviously an important character. Uh, and one of the things out of the book of Acts, chapter 13, Paul was his first missionary trip. He was in one of the synagogues preaching as he normally would do, go into a city, find a synagogue. And he and Barnabas were kind of sitting on the back row minding their own business. And the leaders of the synagogue said, you guys got anything you want to share? Boy. <laughs> That's the wrong thing to say to a preacher, you know. And of course, Paul got up and he started talking to them about Jesus and he was referencing the life of David in the midst of that because David was a hero to these folks. And here's what Paul said in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. When he, meaning God, had removed Saul, he raised up for them David as king to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, that you don't look on the outward man, but you look on the heart. Thank you, Lord, that you're so present in our lives, that you move, that you open the way, that you speak to us, that you guide us, that you empower us. And Lord, this morning as we revisit the life of David, I pray that you open the eyes of our heart, Lord. And help us to see, I mean, these stories are fantastic. Hollywood makes movies out of these stories. But Lord, we want to see past just the story. And help us to do that today, we pray, and we thank you for it. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. God's testimony of David. I think that's awesome, that God was giving a testimony of David. And his testimony is... I found David, 
And David is a man after my own heart. Who will do all of my will? I don't know if there's anything better that could be said about a person than that. A person after God's own heart who will do all of God's will. If I were to finish my life and have that be God's testimony of me, I'd be a happy guy. When we think about the idea of after God's heart, that language is just a little, maybe a little ambiguous. And I think we can see two ideas in it by looking at two other translations. This is the New King James Version, um, which is the updated version of, of the Bible that Paul used. But one of the other translations says, I found David, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man who always pursues my heart. So the idea of being a man after God's own heart is the idea of a man who's always in pursuit of God's heart. And of course, you know, when I say men, I include everybody. That's, this is the Bible generic men thing who always pursues God's heart, who always is looking for God's heart and looking for a way to move closer to, a way to uh, get in touch with, a way to express God's heart. Another translation says, I have found David, Jesse's son, a man who shares my ideas. So it's not so much an idea of pursuing God's heart <clears throat> as it is kind of an idea of being made in the image of God and having our hearts being transformed into God's very heart. So it's not, pursuing God's heart sort of has the idea is there's something out there that we're going for. This idea is there's something in here of God, something in here of God's heart, something in here that we are constantly uh, moving towards having that heart be expressed through our, through our lives. And I think both of those ideas are really important for us to understand as we consider um, this idea of being after God's heart. And then he goes on and he says, David's a man after my own heart. Who will do all of my will? Or who will accomplish all that I have destined him to do? So there's a general will of God. And there's a specific will of God. There's a general will of God for all of us. But there's a specific will of God for each one of us. God has a very particular, personal purpose and plan for each one of our lives. And I think when God says, David will do all my will, I think he's, I think he's expressing that David will do whatever I have in my heart for David to do. Not just the general will of God, but the very specific. So that's what it says, he will, he will accomplish all that I'm destined him to do.
Am I too close here? So because David was a man after God's heart, he did God's will. But because he did God's will, he was becoming more and more a man after God's heart. That's how that works. Whenever we invest anything in pursuing God, whenever we invest anything in the kingdom of God, whenever we invest anything in pursuing God's will, God takes that and he multiplies it. Every single time, any little thing that we put in God's hand, God multiplies it. So, because David was a man after God's heart, he wanted to do God's will, but in doing God's will, David's heart and David's life were transformed. So I want to look this morning at several characteristics, if you will, of David. Look at David's heart. What, what was it that was in David's life that caused God to have this testimony of him, that he's a man after my own heart? And I think we can see, I got four or five, I guess, listed here, characteristics, <clears throat> if you will, of David's life, of David's heart, that brought this kind of attention from God and this kind of declaration from God. All right, first of all, David was a man of faith. Of course, you know what the Bible says, without faith it's impossible to please God. David was a man of faith, and we see this throughout David's life. But I think particularly in the story of David and Goliath, we, we see the, the expression, tremendous expression of David's faith. You know, David was a young man <clears throat> at this point in his life. The armies of Israel were stymied by the Philistines, primarily because of this one guy, Goliath. We all know about him, big, big, hairy dude. And David came on the scene and he said, what? what's the problem? And, you know, it's interesting. That's an interesting question. And what David is saying is, why do you guys think this guy is any more of a problem than anybody else? Why do you think this guy is such a big deal in comparison to God? And that's the way David looked at this. Goliath was no doubt formidable when looked at in terms of human ability. And the giants that you may be facing in your life today may also seem formidable. But the reality is they're pipsqueaks. Amen? 1 Samuel 17. David shows up. Here's all the buzz about Goliath and all of this. And finally makes his way to Saul, and he's saying, I can handle this. He says, your servant has struck down both the lion and the bear. This, uncircumc this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them, for he has defiled the armies of the living God. And David went on to say, the Lord who delivered me from the lion and the bear will also deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Then Saul said to David, go. 
and the Lord be with you. So David made this expression of his faith in front of Saul, but then he goes out into the battle, into the field, and he's facing Goliath. And I mean, Goliath really got sort of offended that they would send this young shepherd boy out to, to meet him. And he, and he makes all of these big threats, and he tells David, I'm going to crush you, man, I, you know, your, your history. Here's what David said in 1 Samuel 17, but David replied to the Philistine, you're coming against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I'm coming against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel's armies, if you ha- who you have defied. Boy, that's so important. Jesus, David wasn't coming at him with natural, physical, man-made things. David was coming against him in the name of the Lord, which implies in the power of the Lord, in the authority of the Lord. And he goes, on this very day, the Lord will deliver me into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. This day, I will give the corpses of the Philistine army to the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the land, and all the land will realize that Israel has a God. So both David's words and David's actions were a demonstration of his faith. And that's something important for us to understand. Faith, in order to accomplish what God wants it to accomplish, it has to be expressed. It has to be expressed through our actions, and it has to be expressed through our words. And I think it would be real important for us, some of us, to learn to stand up in front of the giant who's trying to steal, kill, and destroy and say, no way, in the name of the living God, in the name of Jesus, you will not succeed in my life. Talk to him. Second thing, David was a man of worship. Psalm 5-7 says this, But I know that you welcome me into your house, for I am covered by your covenant of mercy and love. So I come to your sanctuary with deepest awe, bow in worship, and adore you. Amen. David was a man of worship, and again, we see this throughout his life. But there's a couple incidents that I want to look at. First of all, David was a man of worship in the good times. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 14 and following, it says, David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of the ram's horn. So this was a tremendous, full, tremendous, joyous occasion. I mean, the best, if, if you were to ask David, this might be the culmination of everything that he did, was bringing the ark of God up into the, up into the tabernacle that he had built, the tent that he had built. And he was just totally uninhibited in his demonstration of his praise and his worship to God. But not only was David a worshiper in the bad times, or in the good times, he was also a worshiper in the bad times. This is 2 Samuel chapter 12. When David saw that the servants were whispering to each other, he guessed that the baby was dead. So he asked his servants, is the baby dead? 
Yeah, he's dead, they replied. Then David got up from the ground, he washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and went into the Lord's house and worshipped. So this baby was the baby uh, of his sinful uh, liaison with Bathsheba, the first child, and the, and the, and the child died. Um, and David was there, he was on the ground, he was fasting, and he was crying out to God for the life of the baby, and then the baby died. And David got up, and he worshipped God. David's response in the good times, David's response in the bad times, was worship. Amen. There's a line from an old Hillsong song. I don't remember it exactly, but it talks about in every situation, in every circumstance, you are still God, and I have a reason to worship. In every situation of our lives, we have a reason to worship. And that unlocks tremendous things from God into that situation when we take that stand. Number three, David was a man of prayer. Psalm 3, you, Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. Now, much of the book of Psalms are the prayers of David. Matter of fact, there's a couple places where he says the prayers of David, son of Jesse, have ended. So David regarded the Psalms as prayers. But David continually brought God his praise, his problems, and his requests to the Lord. David was always crying out to the Lord. David was always celebrating for the, before the Lord in prayer. David was always lamenting before the Lord in prayer. David was even cursing his enemies before the Lord in prayer. David was a man of prayer. He was always, always looking to the Lord for assistance, for guidance, for direction, for strength. He was a man of prayer. David was a man of the word. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. And all of it is dedicated to expressing David's love and dependence on God's word. Longest chapter in the Bible. David has more to say about the word than any other subject. Just a few examples. Verse 16. I will delight in your decrees and not forget your word. I will delight in your decrees. Amen. The word is something that we delight over, that we should delight over, delight in. Imagine this. This is God speaking to us. This is God speaking to us. And so often people struggle with the word because they're approaching it from a mental, uh, intellectual point of view. And 
as long as we approach God's word like that, we'll never really get it. Because it's not a mental thing. It's a spiritual thing. And it's charged with God's life. And it always makes a difference when we are exposed to the word, when we expose ourselves to the word. It always makes a difference whether we get it or not. It always makes a difference whether we feel anything or not. It always makes a difference whether we understand it or not. Kurt showed that picture, was it last week, about Death Valley and how desolate it was and then a little bit of water and we got the super bloom. Imagine how resilient those seeds must be to lay dormant for five, ten years, whatever, and then just a little bit of water and poof. Well, the Bible says that the Word of God is imperishable seed. It's imperishable seed. And whenever we expose ourselves to the Word of God, that seed is, that seed is sown in our hearts. And it will produce fruit. Oh, how I love your law, David says. It's my meditation all the day, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. So David is saying here that he spends his days meditating in God's word. Psalm 1, he says, blessed is the man who meditates in your word day and night. He's like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water. His leaf will not wither, and he'll bear fruit in season. Blessed is the man who meditates in the Word. Just spending some time thinking in, in God's Word. Just spending some time, um, even throughout the day, thinking on God's Word. He says in verse 105, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. David was looking for the Word of God to give him direction in every, in every, every step of his life. God, David was looking for God's Word to give him direction. Who's directing us? The nightly news? Facebook? Fox News? Who's directing us? Who's influencing the way we perceive the things that are going on in the world? Who's influencing the way that we respond to the way things are going in the world? David says, it's your word, Lord, that's a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. Finally, in verse 111, he says, your testimonies I've taken as a heritage forever. For they are the rejoicing of my heart. <laughs> if I had a Bible, I'd hold it up to you and shake it. I've got my tablet. It's got a Bible in it. But this is my heritage. This is God's gift to me. Amen. And you know what? There's nothing better that God could give us than His Word. 
People say, it's an instruction manual. Indeed it is, but oh, it's so much more than that. More important than being an instruction manual, it's a seed bag. And as you sow the seed of it into your life, it will absolutely bring forth fruit and change your life. Finally, David was a man of repentance. Psalm 32.5 I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I acknowledge my sin to you. Now, that's interesting. I acknowledge my sin to you, kind of like God didn't really know about it. Of course he did. But God wants us to acknowledge our sin, or another word for that is to confess our sin. And what the word confess means, it, 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 we might have the idea that the, word, that the idea of confessing our sin is that we are informing God about our sin. Well, I know, God, you really didn't know this, but... So the idea isn't informing God about our sin. The word confess means to say the same thing as somebody else. And so the, the idea of confessing our sin is that we've come to the realization that some sort of activity or way of thinking or whatever it may be in our lives, we've come to the realization that that is sin. And so we, we come to have the same point of view about an activity that God does. You know, sometimes we need help with that. After the David Bathsheba incident, it seemed like David was going along and maybe even, you know, felt bad about it. But somehow or other, he didn't seem all that distraught about the situation. And then Nathan came, the prophet Nathan came, and spoke God's word to him, and the deception of that situation was broken off of David's heart and off of David's mind, and he came, and he came to see his sin the way God did. And we'll never find a place of healing and restoration until we see our actions the way God does. And God doesn't do that to condemn us. God doesn't do that to put us in our place. God does that because it enables us to move into the place of his life rather than, and light rather than death and darkness. Psalm 51, of course we know this is the famous psalm of David's repentance. He cries out, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You see, God, David is approaching God with a real faith in God's loving kindness and in God's mercy. Deal with me, God, according to your mercy. Deal with me, God, according to your loving kindness. Deal with my sin, God, from your loving kindness and your mercy. 
And we have an assurance that as we bring our sin to the Lord, that that's the way he will deal with us, in love and in mercy. Wash me thoroughly, and I will be cleansed. We can't cleanse ourselves, folks. We can't cleanse ourselves. The The only person who can cleanse us is God. The Bible says, of course you know this, confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God, it's a powerful thing to be a person of repentance. It's not a thing of guilt. It's not a thing of shame. Yes, we can be guilty and shameful over our sin, but God will never put that on us. And God will never respond to us and act towards us from that point of view. It will always be loving kindness and mercy. Our repentance will always be met with loving kindness and mercy. Now the Bible tells us in the New Testament that everything that happened to the folks in the Old Testament happened as examples to us. It says examples upon whom the end of the ages have come. And so while these stories are cool, while they're wonderful, while they're thrilling, while they're Hollywood-like, the point of all of this is to be an example to us. See, I believe what we see here is a roadmap of transformation. Now, transformation in the New Testament is a really important idea. In fact, the whole object of our Christian lives is being transformed. Transformation, the word transformation, it's a Greek word metamorphos, metamorphosis, and it literally means to bring what's on the inside out. And I mean to tell you, when you got born again, Something came on the inside of you. And it's the image of Jesus, and it's the life of God, and it's the love of God. That all exists on the inside of us. You know, we we say that, you know, when when we got saved, that Jesus came into our hearts. Yeah, he did. And I like to say this, when he came in, he brought all of his stuff with him. All Everything that he is. He brought with him, and it's living inside of us now. And it's awesome for it to be inside, but for it to really accomplish what God wants it to, it's got to come out. And that's what the idea of transformation is. And these five things that we looked at, faith, worship, word, prayer, repentance, are the trail by which we will be transformed. We will never be transformed apart from these activities in our lives. Kurt talked last week about next step. Now, I don't know specifically what your next step might be in your own life, but I know generally that your next step is a step further down the road of transformation. God doesn't want us doing stuff just to do stuff. 
God doesn't want us doing stuff just in order to accomplish a task. God wants us doing stuff because in doing the stuff, we're transformed. See, the idea of transformation is, is metamorphosis. It's, it's a cat, caterpillar becoming a butterfly, right? Caterpillars don't have much influence on the people around them. Butterflies do. I mean, somebody sees the butterfly, they will stop what they're doing and watch that butterfly until they can't see it anymore. Amen. See, the way we're going to impact the world and the church is through transformation. To get out of that but, out of that caterpillar deal and into the butterfly, the caterpillar of the natural man, the butterfly of the born again person, amen. It means to bring what's on the inside out. Even Jesus experienced this. Matthew seventeen says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured. Same word. Trans, he was transformed. In front of them, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. What was inside of Jesus came out. And I just want to tell you, folks, you got something in you from God. You've got something in you of God. And we need it. We need it in this church. Silverton needs it. See, the way this city is going to be touched for the gospel is by you and I being transformed. Ben, why don't you come back up? And transformation is a process. It's something that we have to give ourselves to. Give ourselves to faith. Give ourselves to worship. Give ourselves to the word, to prayer, and to repentance.